Welcome to Politico Pulse Check. I'm Dan Diamond. You may have heard that Politico is co-hosting the next Democratic primary debate with PBS NewsHour on Thursday, December 19th. And so we wanted to take a moment to talk about the healthcare topic that's gotten the most consistent airtime during the debates, Medicare for all. Healthcare is a human right. I think we should have a debate on healthcare. The difference between a plan and a pipe dream is something that you can actually get done. If you've been watching the debates, you're probably sick of hearing people argue in quick sound bites about Medicare for all. I'm a healthcare reporter, and I'm sick of it. I've talked to people in healthcare. They're sick of it. But ahead of the next debate, we wanted to fill in what's missing from this conversation. To help me fill in those gaps, I'm joined by Politico healthcare reporters Adam Cankran. Who is also extremely sick of Medicare for All. It's good to be here, Dan. And Alice Miranda Olstein. Who is also very sick of having the same debates about Medicare for All over and over. Well, then you'll be thrilled with the next 20 or 30 minutes of us talking about it. I, I don't want to spend too much time on history, but did want to begin nine years ago. The end of the knockdown dragout fight over health care, specifically the Affordable Care Act, which was signed into law in March 2010. Democrats lost the House in midterm elections later that year. Flash forward to today, where Medicare for all has become a barometer in the Democratic primary. Alice, is it fair to draw a straight line between Democrats' brutal battle over the Affordable Care Act and how party leaders are thinking about Medicare for all now? So different factions in the Democratic Party are looking back at what happened with the Affordable Care Act and taking completely different lessons from that and arguing over what what we should be learning from that debate and how that should be affecting what the party does today. So leadership and with their eye on protecting more vulnerable, moderate members of Congress who are in these so-called frontline districts, they're looking at the not just one election cycle backlash over over the Affordable Care Act, but the multi-election cycle backlash that only recently reversed itself and saying that, look, the party that makes major changes to health care, even if those changes are, you know, positive in the end, favored by most people, the party that screws with health care gets whacked at the polls. And when you say frontline districts and members who might be at risk, we are talking about the Democrats who picked up seats in states like Pennsylvania or or the suburbs of Chicago and not, say, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York, who, no matter what she does on health care, will probably retain the support of her constituents. Absolutely. And progressives like her and like many others are saying, no, the real lesson from the Affordable Care Act is you got to go big at first because in the eventual negotiations over the bill, things are going to get watered down. And so, you know, at first, the Affordable Care Act had a public option and it it didn't. That got stripped out in, in the process. And so, you know, you got to have the biggest opening bid before you go into the negotiations. This taps into, you know, also a, a broader philosophical divide that's emerged and, and specifically out of the Obama administration and the potential of the Obama administration. And this is the idea that when you gain power, the question is, what do you do with it? Do you just try to keep it or do you actually do something with it? And I think what we're seeing now is you have party leaders who remember 09 and 2010 and how just difficult and brutal that fight was and the consequences over the next several years, you know, losses just across the board. And they say, you know, we've gained power back finally. Now we need to focus on keeping it. And you have people on the progressive end led by Bernie Sanders, led by Liz Warren, who say not only do we have a moral obligation to provide universal health care, but what's the point in having power if you're not actually using it? And so if you're building these coalitions, if you're building the power in D.C., 
you have to actually do something that, that makes the country better. And so we're seeing that divide kind of play out in real time, both in Congress and in the, uh, the, the presidential race. I'd like to go point by point now and think about the things that are missing in this Medicare for all discussion, despite all of the expansive debate during television viewing, these arguments get boiled down to quick talking points. And Alice, Adam, we went through and identified what we think are six different points that are largely missing from the Medicare for All discussion. Alice, what's the first one? One, this, as it stands now, could not pass the Senate. Most Senate Democrats currently in office don't support Medicare for All, and most Senate candidates, either who are challenging folks for seats or who are running in open seats, um, don't support Medicare for All. And so when uh, Bernie or Liz Warren talk about, oh, well, we would get rid of the filibuster and just pass it, they don't have 50 votes, let alone 60. And so what what do you do then? Do they have 40 votes? Do they have 30? When you say most Senate Democrats aren't in favor, how big a gap are we talking about? The number of co-sponsors is in the 20s, it's in the, I believe. It's in the teens. And and here's, you know, to, to kind of put a pile on top of that, when Bernie originally rolled out his, his newest Medicare for All plan in late 2017, he came to the table with 16 co-sponsors, was seen as a huge victory. Right, because in 2013, he had zero. He had zero, exactly. The problem is that of those 16, several ran for president, and the only one who actually still supports Medicare for All as the legislation is Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. So, you know, just because you have 16 co-sponsors and that's not nearly enough to begin with doesn't mean that you actually have 16 votes. What else are we missing? Well, two, there's the question of what you're trying to accomplish here, right? There are more than 20 million people still uninsured even despite the gains uh, of, of Obamacare. And it's kind of tapped into this debate over what are we really trying to accomplish? Are we trying to structurally transform the way, you know, the national health care system is, the way care is provided and, and delivered in this country? Or are we trying to just make sure that people have access to good, affordable health care? And depending on where you fall on that debate, that's kind of how you end up viewing Medicare for all. You know, uh, Bernie Sanders and, and Elizabeth Warren, to to a degree, and a lot of the the advocates in in Congress say, "Look, you look at our system now, and it's not doing well. We we lag, uh, you know, a lot of the rest of the developed world in health outcomes, and yet we spend way way more than any other developed country. And that needs to change. And the only way to do that is to go to a single payer system. The vast, I would say, majority of the Democratic Party still is a little bit skeptical of that." Because they've seen Obamacare in action, they've seen people gain coverage and have healthier lives who wouldn't otherwise and say, they're doing great. Why don't we just focus on finding the people who still aren't and try and serve them a little bit better? There is also a fault line between candidates like Pete Buttigieg, who says Medicare for all who want it, and Warren and Sanders, who want the single-payer sweeping system. The critics of Buttigieg say Medicare for all who want it does not solve the problem of the tens of millions of Americans who are underinsured, who have health plans that don't go far enough, that force these Americans to pay a lot out of pocket. And Bernie Sanders and Warren supporters, to some extent, say that's why we need to remake everything. We cannot keep this system in place. The, the argument is also that a optional public system would not do anything to address uh, out-of-control health care costs and national health spending, whereas a national system could 
put those limits on what providers are paid, et cetera. And that Buttigieg argument is something that drives, you know, liberals insane because, you know, it's based on the kind of sense that people somehow love their private insurer. Uh, and a lot of times the reality is that they don't actually like their private insurer, nor do they have more choice than maybe in a single-payer system. But what they do like is the status quo, right? Everybody hates change. We saw it play out in the ACA debate. We would certainly see it play out in another one. And they hate shopping for health insurance, speaking personally as someone who's <laughs> had to do it before. Let's go into another point that I think has been missing. Three, courts could kill Obamacare in the next year. The Affordable Care Act is in legal jeopardy. There is an appeals court that, as of today, December 11th, 2019, we still do not know whether an appeals court will uphold a decision that effectively struck down the ACA. If that happens in the next year, if the Supreme Court then takes up this case, we could look at a world in 2021 where the ACA is gone and the debate over Medicare for all is wildly different. There will be partisans who say, this is why we need to have Medicare for all. Let's just do the whole thing in one big kit and caboodle uh, move. And then there are others who will say, wait, we have to protect what is most in jeopardy and replace the coverage for people who are suffering from the loss of the ACA. Plus, should the courts act to invalidate the Affordable Care Act, tens of millions of people would immediately lose their insurance and hundreds of millions more would potentially face higher costs, potentially you know, lose coverage for certain pre-existing conditions. And uh, so the government, the whoever is the president, whoever's in control of Congress would be consumed with putting out those fires and dealing with the immediate fallout and that would make it very difficult to try to do the hard work of crafting an entirely new system. And Dan, this gets back to your original question of whether you can kind of draw a straight line from 2010 to now. I would argue that you can in some ways, but what really galvanized people around Medicare for All was watching the Republican repeal effort play out in 2017. This idea that everybody now had to grapple with losing the thing that they thought was going to be there for, for decades. And so you had people out there who, who, who came out of that and said, we survived, but only by the skin of our teeth. And the only way to make sure it doesn't happen again is to go even further. I'll make one more point. Alice and I ask lawmakers all the time, what happens if the court invalidates the ACA and we're just staring into the abyss. We don't know what's what to do after that. Well, don't don't Republicans have a plan? Haven't we heard well, over and over again that they've everybody's got this replacement got, plan? Everybody's got so-called plans, but nothing that can get bipartisan support. And you know, we ask Democrats, we ask Republicans, and the most we get is a shrug, and we'll deal with it when it comes. And that doesn't make me feel great. And, and I know it doesn't make a lot of people feel great who say, no matter who is president the odds are we'll have some kind of divisions in Congress and not a supermajority and won't just be able to impose whatever needs to happen, you know, in, on an emergency basis. Right. I mean, we have lawmakers tell us, oh, well, if that were to happen, I'm sure we could come together and do something. And to that, I would say, let's look at several government shutdowns that have happened. Let's look at the end of huge programs like DACA. Let's look at so many other crises that lawmakers previously said would bring people together and spark some sort of environment for compromise and prove not to. The Republicans' plan around Obamacare reminds me of my plan around like filing my expenses and doing all the other paperwork <laughs> that I, I never do until like the deadline is right there. Exactly. And, and maybe that's what will happen. There will be no action, no action until there is a need for action. What else are we missing? Alice. So four, I think it's worth discussing that what 
Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are arguing for, the Medicare for All system that they have put out on the table is not like any other country's universal health care system in the world. It is far more generous. And uh, Bernie loves to point to um, other countries and say, you know, what I'm proposing is not crazy. It's not radical. Look, it's working in all these different places. Right. He's gone up to Canada Mm -hmm. multiple times and said, why don't we have what they have? But what he's proposing is not what they have, and it's not what anyone else has. Other countries, in order to make their systems work, either require people to pay copays of some sort. They uh, limit benefits in some ways. They have supplemental private insurance that a lot of people have in order to um, wrap around and provide the services needed that the public system can't provide. And so I think it'd be interesting to press these candidates more on why they think that they could make this super comprehensive, super generous, absolutely no cost to the patient system work when we don't see that anywhere else. What's really interesting about this, too, is that, you know, on the one hand, um, Bernie Sanders says, you know, all these other countries can do it. Why can't we? On the other hand, his whole plan and the appeal of the plan is built on how generous it is, on, on the idea that, you know, America is exceptional in a certain way, and therefore we should have exceptional health care. Um, so it's kind of this, you know, having it both ways, and that, that hasn't really been fully explored. And you haven't really seen somebody try to split the difference. Maybe Kamala Harris was the, the, the closest in, in trying to establish a system that would work and at the same time provide extremely generous benefits. Uh, we saw how that worked out. She's no longer in the race. Just out of curiosity, President Trump ran on a platform of promising also great health care, not being specific on what he would do. And now three years essentially into his term, we still have not seen his full plan. Progressives have told me, why are we so tough on Bernie Sanders and company when Trump is in the White House and hasn't delivered? Are we applying an unfair standard to Bernie Sanders, Liz Warren, and anyone else who's pushing Medicare for all? I think the reason it's getting so much scrutiny is because it is this proposal for a massive overhaul. And I think that what Trump is essentially doing is maintaining the status quo, and that always is able to skate a bit more. Um, I think that Trump's health moves that have made big changes are getting a lot of scrutiny, for instance, imposing requirements on Medicaid, for one example. Yeah. And look, when you put out actual legislation, this is the scrutiny that you invite, right? The flip side is that you get taken seriously as somebody with a serious idea. Trump, for all of the kinds of things that he said, the health press and I think the press in general has always approached his plans or his promises for plans extremely skeptically. And in much the same way that Bernie has, you know, a minority of the population who's very hardcore fans of him and not going to leave, Trump has his base too. And there has to be a realization both with Sanders and, and with Trump that whether he comes through on plans uh, or not, whether his promises are fulfilled, the, that hardcore base is unlikely to just kind of give up and, and, and move on. Um, so there, there are certain people on both sides there that you're just not going to be able to move. Let's think about what else we are missing. Adam. Well, five is a big difference from the ACA is that the entire healthcare industry is against Medicare for all. And, and, and honestly, not only are they against Medicare for all, they're against any major government expansion of health care. So, so anything from Joe Biden's public option up to Bernie Sanders' Medicare for all, the healthcare industry is going to fight it tooth and nail. And, and there's a couple reasons for that, but the main one is financial. One, the insurance industry you know, has their entire existence at stake with Medicare for all. 
Uh, if it were to pass, you would essentially see the destruction of a more than a half a trillion dollar industry almost immediately. The hospitals are against it, uh, mainly because they would be forced to take pay cuts in what they're paid by the government, what they're paid by, you know, then non-existent private, private insurers to actually provide care. Uh, and Pri you, private insurers pay significantly more than Medicare or Medicaid do. In some cases, two to three times. And there's, there's a lot of leverage that hospitals can exert on private insurance companies to get paid far more than what the government has to. And so, and this, you know, and uh, drug companies as well would face a lot of new restrictions. You know, there's been this big debate this year about whether the government should negotiate drug prices directly with companies. Well, let me tell you what, that's in Medicare for all too. So it's bad news across the board for the healthcare industry. And, you know, I've wrote about this pretty extensively at this point, Alice has as well. Uh, there is already a massing of resources, uh, a coalition that's kind of being brought together well before any of this is even possible, even you can even think about it passing Congress, to make sure that they are grinding down support for Medicare for all, make sure that they are fully prepared for whatever comes in 2021. And the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future, which is the lead industry group attacking yes. these proposals, there's a good chance that listeners to this podcast, if you're watching the debate on Thursday and you see some of the television coverage and reaction, the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future has bankrolled a lot of ads across a lot of different networks, often on debate nights, to react to the healthcare proposals and attack Medicare for all. And they're targeting specifically Iowa, specifically early primary states, and specifically swing states. And their sense is that, look, if you can keep the swing voter, if you can keep the moderate Democratic voter uh, against Medicare for all, against one of these big things, then it's never going to happen in this country. So Adam, I want to go back to what you're saying about the health insurance industry going away. This has been both a major goal of progressives who say that the insurance industry is greedy and props up costs. But at the same time, when this idea of people losing jobs starts getting traction, progressives get mad about that too and say that Bernie Sanders bill, Pramila Jayapal in the House, that they would retrain workers, that we don't need to worry about jobs going away. Pete Buttigieg was on, uh, was on Rachel Maddow on Tuesday night and got pressed on his McKinsey work and his rebuttal was, well, yes, I worked with this insurance company that later cut jobs. But if Medicare for all supporters have their way, all health insurance industry jobs will disappear. Progressives hated that. How can you square the circle of costs are going to go down, but we shouldn't worry about jobs going away? Well, and this is the difference, right? It's, it's incredibly easy to demonize the evil insurance company. A little bit tougher to demonize the hundreds of thousands of people who are employed and just trying to make a paycheck every day, people who themselves may be struggling to pay for, for health insurance. The the argument that you get on the progressive side is, yes, we can retrain them. A lot of these people are not actually involved in providing health care. They're involved in adjudicating claims or other paperwork, and they can be either employed by the federal government or moved elsewhere. To that, I say, during the 2016 race, Hillary Clinton made a similar comment about coal workers. And that did not go Just over a great. lot fewer people lot than fewer are people. employed by the health insurance and, industry. And Republicans used it against her from that day until November. And we saw how that election worked out. Now, that's not a direct line there, but it was not well received in West Virginia. Now imagine trying to tell people throughout the entire country, swing states, anywhere, that, look, you may get guaranteed health care, but it may come at the expense of the career that you have trained and worked toward. And importantly, a lot of these jobs are in key swing states that either party would have to win in order to win the election. There's a lot in Pennsylvania. There's a lot in Ohio. 
Princeton professor Uwe Reinhardt, who passed away, but had had so many pithy sayings. One of them was essentially, a dollar in healthcare waste to one person is a dollar in another person's paycheck. And you've written about this, Dan. It's it's the Affordable Care Act has been a massive jobs program. I mean, we've seen an expense an, ex, an expansion of healthcare workers, of healthcare employment, uh, to the point where it's become a major driver of the economy. So you now have to think about what are going to be the ripple effects on, you know, on the employment rate, on just the overall health of the U.S. economy. And what's hard for Medicare for All proponents is that they're both arguing at the same time that one, this wouldn't be a job killer, and everybody, you know, would be taken care of. Um, but one of the main Um, benefits that they're touting for Medicare for All is that it cuts down on administrative spending. Administrative spending is people. Let's go to one final point that's been largely missed. Six, Medicare for All has been a political quagmire. That's at least the argument that some candidates and, and their campaign staff have made. Kamala Harris recently dropped out the presidential campaign. Within minutes, I got a call from an official on a different campaign arguing Look, Medicare for All was when it all went wrong for Kamala Harris back in the summer. Similarly, Elizabeth Warren has seen her support decline ever since she came out with a more staggered plan for Medicare for All. Lefties said that this was too much of a retreat. Folks on the right, conservatives, said this is still too far for us. So is Medicare for All the issue that no matter what a Democrat does, it ends up bleeding support for that candidate? Basically for everybody but Bernie. We did we did a piece uh, myself with some of our campaign reporters looking at the rush of Senate Democrats to support some Senate Democrats to support Medicare for all back in 2017 and endorse Bernie's bill and how that has really come back to haunt them this time around. And we, you know, we have this um, presidential campaign issue tracker here at Politico. Everybody should check it out uh, that we continually update. And at the beginning of the primary, Adam and I were in charge of tracking who was in favor of Medicare for all. And it was like half the field. And then slowly we moved each person into the other category as they backed away from their original position supporting it. And, you know, talking to healthcare experts, this is just always what happens with big sweeping healthcare reforms. They're always popular at first. It always sounds good at first. And then as things get taken more seriously, as there's more scrutiny, as there's more studies about it, as industry mobilizes their arguments against it, it always becomes... Uh, more difficult politically to defend. And so I think that's why we've seen uh, what we've seen with so many candidates in this primary struggling to explain their prior support and struggling to explain why they don't support it anymore. Yeah. And I, I guess I'll make you know two points about this. One is, as president in your first term, you get to do one, maybe two big things, right? In the Obama administration, the thing that he chose to do first was Obamacare, right? In the Trump administration, the thing that they chose to do first was Obamacare. Didn't quite work out the same exact <laughs> way. But you get one or two big priorities, and that's it for your first term. So in thinking about this, and this is something that I hope you know can be explored either at this debate or in, further, in future debates, the question of, of the field that's still remaining, who would actually make Medicare for All one of those top two priorities? In, in my mind, it's Bernie Sanders maybe Elizabeth Warren, and that's about it. Not according to her, though. According to her, her top priorities are these sort of democracy reforms and anti-corruption measures, which she says would then make passing Medicare for all later easier because you you know diminish the power of the industry to fight those reforms. But 
she does not list Medicare for All as one of her first actions. Exactly. And, and maybe that feeds into my second point, um, that when you talk to progressives about this, they it's a little bit hard f- for them to kind of wrap their minds around what other people are, are, are throwing at them and what, what they're throwing at other people because they're not thinking in four, eight-year cycles, right? You talk to progressives about this, they say Medicare for All is part of a broader movement. And that movement may, may be accomplished in four years or eight years or maybe 20 years. But the whole idea is to shift the, the sense of what's possible and who's at the table. So for them, yes, Medicare for All is important as an issue. Medicare for All is important politically. But it's mostly about kind of getting everyday Americans to understand and to open their minds to things that have been seen as just not possible in the way that Washington works. So Alice, Adam, we just spent more than 20 minutes talking about Medicare for All. Do you hate it any less now? I I never hated Medicare for All. I think there's a lot to say. What has been driving us bonkers over here is that these presidential debates have hit on the same exact arguments over and over and over. Will it raise taxes? You know, um, you know, will you commit to this financing plan? How do you pay for it? Um, and as we've discussed in this podcast, there are a lot of other questions that have not been answered that are out there. Yeah. And like Alice, look, I think there is some kind of weariness about talking about the same specifics of the legislation, right? But as a window into the debate within the Democratic Party and where the party goes. Medicare for All is, is fascinating. I mean, you get into the philosophies of the various you know, players. You get into kind of who is, is emerging as the leader of the party, the leaders of the party over the next generation, um, both as health policy and as you know, a political study. I think there's a lot still to be learned. Well, we will see what moderator Tim Alberta, our colleague at Politico, and his fellow moderators from PBS ask at the debate about Medicare for All. That debate, again, is Thursday, December 19th on PBS. Adam, Alice, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Dan. That's it for our special look at Medicare for All on Politico Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Alice Miranda Olstein and Adam Kankren for joining the show and Annie Reese for producing the podcast. You can find Politico Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast applications. My favorite is Overcast. You can find me by email at ddiamond at politico.com. You can find a new episode of Pulse Check in your podcast player very soon. Thanks for listening.